Our Old Testament scripture passage this morning, Hosea chapter 11. Pew Bible, page 1407, Hosea chapter 11. You know, the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Swords will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me, even if they call to the Most High. He will by no means exalt them. How can I give give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, the house of Israel with deceit, and Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. And then our New Testament scripture passage, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 15, Pew Bible page 1498. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. This uh, particular fulfillment of prophecy has often queried many. You heard me read Hosea chapter 11. You heard what it was about. And yet, in a seemingly bizarre application of Hosea chapter 11, Matthew says here that Jesus, coming out of Egypt with his parents, is a fulfillment of what God said of Israel. Out of Egypt I called my son. How is that supposed to make sense? How are we to make sense of that? Are we supposed to believe that the New Testament scripture writers play Fast, loose, and easy with the Old Testament scriptures? 
Or are we supposed to understand that there's something more profound going on here? Well, Irenaeus of Lyons, lived from A.D. 130 to 202, was a bishop in the area now known as modern-day France, was then called Gaul. He proposed what is now called the recapitulation theory of atonement. It's a very important theory of atonement in correlation or relation to what we call today covenant theology. Because what Irenaeus was talking about when he was talking about recapitulation was the idea that Christ, as the second Adam, as Paul calls him in in Romans, uh, was faithful at all the points where the first Adam failed. You could also say that through this recapitulation theory, Irenaeus was saying that Christ was the true and faithful Son of God. Now that's important because that's exactly what Matthew is telling us in our prophecy fulfillment today. Our theme this morning is Satan tries to destroy the Son of God, but he is rescued so that he might destroy Satan. Satan tries to destroy the Son of God, but the Son of God is rescued that he might destroy Satan. So let's look at this scripture passage this morning. Uh, We have one point, uh, uh, three points. The first point being the seed of the serpent, and that's verse 13. Uh, When they had gone, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and warned him, right, that Herod was going to try to kill the child. Uh, the second point that we have is basically verses 13 to 15, asking the question, why Egypt? Why is this a question? Why is this uh, event being described here? And Matthew is the only place that it's described, uh, this, uh, this event of, of them having to leave to go to Egypt and then waiting and then being called back, right? Uh, why Egypt? And, 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 and basically looking at a theology of Egypt, throughout the scriptures, okay? Because Egypt has a lot of significance. Its meaning has a lot of significance. And and then the last point is verse 15, where uh, uh, Matthew says, uh, the prophecy was fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Um, And we're going to look at Hosea chapter 11 in correlation with that. Last point, and we're going to talk about how Jesus is the true Israel. So let's look at that first point, the seed of the serpent. Verse 13. Uh, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. In verse 13, we hear, when they had gone. Well, when they had gone is in reference to the the Magi. The Magi that had come and visited Jesus. And when we talked about the passage in the last uh, last Sunday, we talked about how the... the, um, the arrival of the Magi's announcement of a new and coming king to Herod created this uh, tension, created this conflict between these two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Christ, right? The kingdom of the kings of this world and the kingdom of that's not of this world. And we see that um, conflict continue to, to boil and to bubble up. Until eventually we're going to see in our our, our next fulfillment of prophecy the culmination of that boiling point. And we're going to realize that uh, not every story of Christmas is a happy story. A joy-filled story. An announcement of great tidings. That the arrival of Christ is actually one that comes with a sword. Comes with conflict. Comes with Pain comes with a cost. 
that the arrival of Christ is actually a dividing point in history that means at this point, either you are with Christ or you are not with Christ. There is no in-between. There is no gray space. There is no middle ground. There is no fence sitting. Alliances are being made. Enemies are being created. And we see that here in this great cosmic battle that's going on underneath the surface that has been prophesied since the very beginning, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. Here it is. The seed of the woman has arrived in Jesus Christ. That promised seed of Abraham, the descendant of David. And we see the cosmic battlefield begin to move. The opposing king, King Herod, functioning as the representative of the seed of the serpent, the kingdom of Satan, desires to come in and to snuff out the kingdom of Christ when he's at his most weak and vulnerable state. When it's just a little child. And so, what happens? When they had gone, an angel, the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And in this dream, they are warned, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Escape to Egypt. And so, God intervenes in the form of a dream in order to put to an end, at least at this point, Satan's attempt to destroy the Son of God. And I think it's very important that in this day and age, where we're at right now, that we take to heart this reality. This reality that there is still a cosmic battle going on, right? That there are still forces at work, uh, spiritual forces, what Paul calls us fighting not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers and the forces in the air and the spirits of darkness. There is a spiritual war happening. And in very real sense, those spiritual realities manifest themselves in the kingdom of men in things like political maneuvering and powers that seek to silence the church and the gospel. Political maneuverings and powers that make it legal for babies to be murdered and the thousands and thousands and millions. There are powers at work. And I'm not being a conspiracy theorist here by saying this. This is the reality. There are powers at work seeking continually as Revelation calls it, 
the dragon is coming after the children of the woman because it couldn't get to the son. And here we have, right at the beginning of this era, this history that we live in now, the, the church era, a represent, repre- representation of this cosmic battlefield going on. The seed of the serpent seeking to snuff out the Son of God. But this is what we need to take to heart. God doesn't let that happen. Because it's God's intention that the Son of God grow up. The Son of God walk this earth to teach and preach for three years and then to go to the cross and to die on the cross for our sins and three days later rise again. Even though Satan desires to destroy the Son of God, even in his desire to destroy the Son of God and even in his moment where he thinks he's accomplished his will and ended what God desired to do, what God had planned to do in bringing Jesus Christ into this world and bringing about the salvation that he was to accomplish. God was victorious over Satan and his kingdom. And that's exactly how God operates. That's his modus operandi. That is the way the kingdom of Christ functions. It's in that very moment when we think that Satan and his kingdom is going to be successful at destroying the work of God. It's in that very moment when we think all things are lost and the light of the world has been snuffed out. It's in that moment when God shows up shows that he is victorious over the powers of darkness. It's that moment when God shows up and declares the kingdoms of this world and of man have now become the kingdoms of God and of Jesus Christ, his son. We must not lose heart. When it seems that all things Look bad around us. Because that's when God likes to show up and get all the glory. The seed of the serpent has been crushed. And God is placing the serpent under our foot through Jesus Christ. That's point number one. Point number two, why Egypt, okay? So the uh, angel comes and tells Joseph, you have to go to Egypt, escape to Egypt, right? And then they got up, they left for Egypt, and then once Herod passed away, he, they came back from Egypt, and that is a fulfillment of the prophecy. So besides the fact that this whole event occurred so that uh, Christ could fulfill the prophecy put down in Hosea chapter 11, 
Um, there's a number of other things. First of all, in the scripture, in the story of the, of the Bible, um, Egypt is often a place where the people of God go in times of hardship. This happens in Genesis as we're studying the book of Genesis, right? Uh, in the book of Genesis, Abraham goes to Egypt when there's a famine. Um, and then, at the end of the, the book of Genesis, um, Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt, and then there's another famine, right? And so Joseph goes, and he, uh, by God's providence, becomes second in command. And then because of that, uh, because he's there, because he's, he's, uh, he's got that power, and he's got that influence, and he was given that premonition, that dream, that there would be a famine for many years, and they, they, Egypt prepared for this, that the people of God were kept alive, that they came to Egypt, and they settled in the land of Goshen, and they were able to flourish and to grow and to uh, expand as a people. And so there was a, a time of refuge and a time of, uh, a time of uh, keeping and a time of provision and protection that happened in Egypt, Right? But there's also a flip side to, uh, to what Egypt represents and to what Egypt uh, points to in the scriptures. And it is a place where that safety and that protection is sought, but not in God, but in the world. In the book of Genesis, uh, the, the concept of going to Egypt is often p- painted in a negative way. In the story of the Exodus, um, the grumbling and the complaining that often happens from the Israelites are, oh, but we like the way it was in Egypt. Can we go back to Egypt? Why can't we go back to Egypt? We like being slaves there in Egypt. And then as they settle into the promised land, oftentimes Egypt is referenced because, because in times of pressure, in times of conflict with other nations, uh, the people of Israel would often seek to do alliances, seek to, uh, seek to align themselves with Egypt again for protection and for safety. And we have to ask ourselves then, why is it that the angel speaking on behalf of God tells Jesus and his parents to go to Egypt? if there's this negative connotation. Well, that is because as we enter into the third point, as we see what Irenaeus was meaning by this recapitulation theory, we find that Jesus is reenacting the reality of the people of Israel. He's reenacting the life of the people of Israel. But what is different about the people of Israel and Jesus is that everywhere Israel failed, everywhere Israel sinned, everywhere Israel stumbled, everywhere Israel fell short, Jesus is faithful. And so, Jesus as the true Israel, the true Son of God, he goes down to Egypt as a place of refuge, but he does not put his heart and his trust in Egypt. does not become a slave in Egypt. And then, 
He is exiting from Egypt. Just like the people of God came down to Egypt in a time of hardship to escape from death, so does Christ. And just like they were freed and redeemed out of Egypt, so God calls Christ out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my son. And so you can understand then why Matthew talks about Hosea chapter 11. There are many ways in which Israel is referred to in the scriptures, many ways in which Israel is referenced in the scripture. They're often called God's bride. He is the husband. They are the bride. This is, a, uh, this is an analogy that is actually used in the very book of Hosea. Israel is called a vineyard that God plants and God prunes and God waters and God protects. Israel is called the 12 tribes. Israel is called a number of things, but one thing that they're called as well, that they are called God's son. You see, many people look at the New Testament and the way that Jesus talks about God the Father and teaches us to call God the Father. And this relationship, this familial relationship that Jesus brings or teaches in the New Testament as he comes and he does his preaching and his teaching is something brand new and profound and something that's bringing in a, a new sense of intimacy, and people neglect the fact that this is something that is taught in the Old Testament. God speaks to the people of Israel in a singular form, as a unit. And he says, I've adopted you. You are my prized possession." Of all the nations in the world, you alone have I known. Not because you are great, but because I have chosen you. You are my son. You are my son. And then it's as Israel becomes a kingdom and a nation that this idea of son and adoption becomes more personified in the position and role of king in Israel, and that's why you see uh, royal psalms like Psalm 2 talking about God adopting, today I have called you my son, today I have adopted you, about the, the representative of the people of Israel in the, in the position and the role of king, but God speaks to all of the people of Israel as, as one, and he says, you're my son. And so in Hosea chapter 11, God speaks to Israel in this way. He says, this is one of the most beautiful passages describing God's love for his people. Hosea chapter 11. And, and I urge you to just go and to just read it and to, to take it in. In fact, one of the books that has most profoundly expounded this passage for me that I've read most recently is, um, is a book by Dane Ortland. 
talking about the mercy of God, the love of God. This is what God is saying to Israel. When, I, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Just back when Israel was just a lowly child, a little infant, a little toddler, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. I, I, I freed, I redeemed Israel out of Egypt. I called my son. And you can hear God's cry. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to Baals. They burned incense to images. Listen to the way he speaks about them. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. Can't we all remember, if we're parents, teaching our little ones to walk? They're taking us, they're holding our, little, our finger with their hand, as they figure out those first few steps, this is God. This is God speaking about Israel, his people. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and I've been down to feed them. I said, you're slaves. Let me free you. Let me redeem you. Let me care for you. Let me provide for you. And this is what they do. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? This is what's going to happen because they refuse to see how much I love them. But they refuse to see that their path is a path of destruction. Swords will flash in their cities. Will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, he will by no means exalt them. They have chosen their path. They will not listen to the cries of their father. They will not listen to the cries of the one who loves them and who is calling out to them that they would turn from this way and be saved. And it's almost as if you think, and you think you understand, you think you know that what God is about to say next is, therefore I will judge them in all my wrath, and I will destroy them because they deserve it, and they are sinful, and they are wicked, and they, destroy, they deserve destruction, and they deserve condemnation and judgment. You almost get the sense that that's what God is about to say. I love them as a father. They refuse my love as a father. Now I come to them as a judge. That's not what God says. God says, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I am God and not man. The Holy One among you, I will not come in wrath. I will not come in wrath. I don't think there are many words much stronger than that in the Bible to describe God's compassion and love for his people. 
You almost get the sense that he understands what we parents feel like when we realize it doesn't matter what our kid does. It doesn't matter how much they disappoint us. It doesn't matter how much they let us down. It doesn't matter how much they choose a path of destruction. It doesn't matter how often or how much they, they turn towards sin and go towards sin. It doesn't matter. We cannot not love them. This is the way God is speaking of his son, Israel. And that's why it's so profound. It's so glorious. When we read in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. That when Christ came. And he had to spend a little time in safety in Egypt. And finally the angel came and told him it's safe to go back. That Christ is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Out of Egypt I called my son. Because if there are any more words more powerful in communicating the love that God has for his people... Then Hosea chapter 11 describes. If there are words any more powerful that communicate to God's people his compassion for them, his desire to save them and to redeem them from their sin. It is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. All the words that God speaks of his people as his son and him as their father are embodied in the advent of Jesus Christ. If you want to know the truth of God's word, when he said, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, but they did not realize it was I who healed them, then I want you to think about Mary and Joseph teaching little Jesus how to walk in the streets of Nazareth. If you want to understand the reality, the embodiment of the words found in 11, Hosea chapter 11, verse 4, I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. Then I want you to think about your Savior, Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross and saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. 
If you want to see the incarnation of the words that God spoke in Hosea chapter 11, verse 8, when he says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adam? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the holy among, among, one among you. I will not come in my wrath. Then you must understand that what he means by that is I will come in Christ. I will come in Christ. And instead of pouring my wrath out upon you, my child, whom I love, I will pour my wrath upon my child, Jesus Christ, whom I love. You see, Satan tries to destroy the Son of God, but God rescues him so that he might destroy Satan. It is so important that we see that Christ is living out the life of the true Israel. Sinless in every way in all the places where Israel failed and sinned. But it's also important that we do not simply think of that like some cool theological concept that we like to ponder and, and debate but we realize that Christ living out, replaying the life of Israel, but being sinless by doing it, being sinless in doing it, is, is an act, of an expression of God's love for us, of God's compassion for us, of God's desire to redeem us. Of God the Father saying, you're my child and I will not come in wrath. I will come to save. I will come to save. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your great and wonderful expression of compassion and love for your child, uh, for the people of Israel, for Christ who is the true Israel and we who are the true Israel in Christ. Lord, may we know that the incarnation is the most profound expression of your love, compassion, and desire to save your children. We pray, Lord, that this reality would be so profound to us. That you would work it in our hearts and our minds. The power of your love for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The victory that he has had over Satan and his works. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.